Hello, and welcome to another episode of Public Work, the Public Humanities Podcast, here at the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage at Brown University. We have a gigantic episode for you today. We are talking to Julianne Fontana and Angela Feng, who are the co-curators of Providence's Chinatown, an exhibit and walking tour that started in April of 2018 and runs until the end of May 2018. Um, So we hear a lot about that project and and its origins. And in talking through the origins of this project, we also hear from Diane O'Donoghue, who is the director of the Program for Public Humanities and a senior fellow for the humanities at the Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts in Somerville, or Somerville, Medford. I don't know. It's one of those places. Sorry, Tufts. Uh, Look it up on Google Maps. Um, But yeah, Diane has taught in the public humanities program here at Brown and and had conversations and and shared ideas with Julianne and Angela that led to the creation of this Providence's Chinatown exhibit. And I am joined with Amelia Golchewski. And I this this both of these projects really get into uh, how to make archival history visible, thinking about preserving histories no longer present and the spaces they used to occupy. Um, it's very cool to hear students talking to Diane, whose project really inspired their own. And if you are in the Providence area, definitely check out Providence's Chinatown before it closes on May 31st. Yeah, and, and also to clarify, Diane's work in Boston uh, was with Boston's Chinatown neighborhood. Uh, and specifically, it was looking at the history of the library, uh, the Boston Public Library branch that was in Chinatown and, and was closed a few times. And, and in fact, due to the, the visibility of the history of that library uh, in February 2018, a branch reopened in Chinatown. So it's a, it's a really impressive and uh, commendable kind of project that you know we're obviously excited to see our peers here at the the center kind of picking up the baton and and modeling their work on it um so it's yeah it's just a lot of really interesting project work and and we're also going to hear a lot about the history of providence's chinatown which for people who are going to school here in providence or who've moved here uh and don't know the long history i think it's it surprised a lot of people in the area to to realize that there was a Chinatown. And I think that's like one of the big talking points or takeaways from, from doing work like that is that that shouldn't be the case. And, and, and so this work is filling a really important and necessary gap. Yeah. And it also is an example of how public humanities work can shape kind of civic life in cities and how this work can make something really practical come about. Yeah. Getting a library back in Boston's Chinatown. Yeah, if you're if you're still if you've got a lot of questions about what this thing called public humanities is or or why people are invested in it, I think the two projects that you're going to hear a bit about today are great models and examples of the kind of work that we value as people who are invested in the term public humanities. So, without further ado. You're going to hear first from Julianne and Angela, and then we're going to hear from us, Julianne, Angela, and Diane all talking together. It's a, it was a real, not a logistical nightmare, but but there were a lot of uh, microphones and, and cell phones and, and various other things that, that happened behind the scenes. But um, luckily, we don't have video of, of us like putting together all, all of that. Um, yeah. So enjoy the episode. <laughs> and... <laughs> 
Uh, we worked really hard on it. Enjoy the episode and let us know what you think. Uh, check us out on Twitter at Public Work Pod or email us at publicworkpodcast at gmail.com. And if you are interested in the uh, the work in Providence's Chinatown, um, they have a website too. It's richinesehistory.com. Um, and we'll have some links in the show notes with uh, all the cool stuff that our guests have been working on. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. Today we are here with Julianne Fontana and Angela Fang, and we're going to hear a little bit about their project on Providence's Chinatown, which has kind of taken over Westminster Street and downtown Providence. So to get started... How did you guys learn about Providence's Chinatown? And can you tell us what Chinatown was and what it is now? Uh, actually, very few, people, very few people know that there was a Chinatown between 1880s and 1960s in downtown Providence. And we didn't know last spring, until last spring actually, right? Right. And that's we were inspired by the previous work of Diane um, O'Donoghue, professor from Tufts. And also we were inspired by the work of Zhang Wang and Prof- Professor uh, Robert Lee, who has done decades of research in uh, on the Chinese community in Rhode Island. I think that's the very beginning of our thoughts in how this come into being, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so last spring we were taking an in the introduction to public humanities class together, mm-hmm. and we found out about Chinatown, and we started to do a little bit of our own research and to compile some data, and we made a very rough draft. It was a Brown Blogs website. So that was our first attempt and our first chance to get this information out there. And then from there, that's when it really developed into more of a a full-scale project. So when you were starting to do this research, what were some of the the aspects of the story of Providence's Chinatown that you were uncovering and, and finding out what was surprising to you, what was um, new to you, what, what seemed like the most important stuff to, to get out in 2018? Mm, I think, you know, in the summer I, w- I was doing a summer practicum actually on this research as archival work. So I did get up a lot of u- useful stuff from the Providence Journal uh, around 18. I just uh, download all their most of their articles on Chinese and Chinese community from 1860 to the 1960s. It's almost like anything coverage of Chinese, you know, presence in in Rhode Island. And from there, I think, oh, there was a Chinatown, actually. There was a Providence Journal around 1900. We have this coverage of Chinatown, this kind of political cartoon about Chinese people. So from there, you can tell they, they address this, you know, this the community as Chinatown. I think that was really surprising. I didn't know that. And then we get more, you know, more research and more sense. We, we check, we, I just do more research on the census data and um, the, the historical maps in Providence and check more and talk with Professor, Professor Zhang Wang, who has already got a collection of um, historical documents. So we, 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 you know, we have more directions to go and also get connected with the community to see what they have. You know, they have this kind of family archives, which we can, you know, look examine and, you know, add to our work yeah yeah and I think another thing that was really important to us to highlight was the the Chinese Exclusion Act and so that that would be a main part of the narrative Mm -hmm. we talk about immigration and people coming to the United States Mm -hmm. 
but also we wanted to make sure we talked about discrimination and racism. So a lot of those Providence Journal articles that Angela was talking about mm. were not um, good representations of the community. Right. And so we wanted to make sure that that was present throughout the exhibit as well. Yes. Yeah, if you wanted to say, Angela, a little bit more about right, the Exclusion we, Act. Right, the Exclusion Act, you know, there is a Chinese Exclusion Act between 1882 and 1943. So basically, Chinese labor were barred against from com- you know, entering the U.S. And for those who has already been here, you know, during the gold rush in, in 1940, 1840, I mean, in California. So this, this harsh discrimination actually driven has driven them to the east coast so they, they don't have more job openings in on the west coast so they came to midwest and and also to the east coast which i guess is a little bit you know, have more op- job opportunities here so that's the one of the reasons it's like an internal or domestic migration from the west to the east for chinese community during the 19, 1860s to 1900 that's why we have a surge in 19 and hundred the censors show that we have three hundred Chinese communities here in Providence. I mean that that's huge, you know, that because in considering the the population size in in, in Providence in general. And, and they were coming to Providence because Providence was an industrial town. Uh, as not exactly as an industrial town. It's one of the job options for them, mm-hmm. but mostly they work within the Chinese community. Even if in on the west, on the east coast, still, they won't be hired mm-hmm. by white employers. So they, that's why they start laundry. Laundry is like one person can start a laundry. You know, it, they require very minimum, you know, capital to get it started. And then we accumulate the capital enough, two, two or three of them can collaborate and open a restaurant, and then they can invite more family and friends to join them. I mean, village friends, village family members to join them, have a bigger, you know, business. So that's like a mutual support system within the Chinese community. And from then, I think there, in 1911, we have a Chinese Merchants Association established in Providence, where which used to be a community center. You know, they, they offer this kind of support, how to open the business, how to do your, you know, legal papers. They protect the community and and even care for the poor you know, who don't have a place to live. They just uh, offer a kind of a boarding house on, on their community center on the third or three, fourth floor of their community center. So asking for a very low rent or even no rent at all. So that's kind of a, a mutual support within the community that make them survive. Yeah. So you're talking about like a really thriving community in Rhode Island. And I think... You guys didn't know this existed until last spring. So what happened between the 1940s to today? Why isn't there a Providence Chinatown currently? Well, I think a little bit of the story goes back to Chinatown in Providence, even when it was here. There's a a record in the Providence Journal from the 1890s that says that Providence, or excuse me, that Chinatown in Providence in some ways, was was never a Chinatown like in New York or Boston. So it was never a huge number of people, and it was more of a network of, mm-hmm. of connections. And so this network connected them to a lot of other cities in the Northeast as well. So sometimes the the boarding houses that Angela was talking about, people would come down from Boston. Maybe they lived in Boston, and they come down for a few days, work in a restaurant in Providence, and then go back to Boston at the end of the week. So it's just sort of, it was already just kind of this more spread out network, and then we don't know 
the exact story because this is really still ongoing research and a lot of this is with oral histories and talking to community members. But overall, our understanding is that as families were able to make enough money that they would move more into the suburbs. So there still are people around who live sort of in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. But then also some some of the the kids who grew up here in the Chinatown, then they grew up and they moved to other places around the country as well. Right. I think Juliana is right that this is like a networking. I would say this is like trans-Pacific networking from the you know from their home village in from Taishan, a very small uh, county in Guangdong Province, to the west coast or even directly to the east coast. And, you know they they scatter in Boston, New York, Chicago. You know in Providence, Providence you know used to be a very important port. You know this kind of. So I guess the earliest origin of Chinese presence in Rhode Island date back to 1790s. That's the during the China trade. So we have the first Chinese you know, appeared in Rhode Island. But the census data actually say, okay, the first resident in, in Rhode Island, I mean, the Chinese resident is actually around 1860s. So we have this, you know, earlier connections between Providence and China, especially Canton, you know, that's the another uh, important export, you know, this city. And... And and for, for for the contemporary immigration issue, I think it's still about networking. But that's a so the earlier immigrants actually from Canton, from um, certain area in the, in the Pearl River Delta, and then contemporary immigrants are more from mainland China, from the northern part of China. So this is something actually we're trying to cover. So we try to bridge, you know, the earlier immigrants and the contemporary immigrants to arouse their interest in, you know, in, in, in each other. But there's something we're still working on. From our visitor experience, it seems like it's the earlier immigrants are more interested in the project because it's all about their stories. But the contemporary uh, and the recent immigrants, like students, you know, from China, international students, although we have publicized the event, among the community, but I don't know, maybe out of, they don't have enough time or, or maybe, maybe less interested because it's nothing so closely related to their own life. Uh, so we have few visitors from that group. And this is one of our concerns. Yeah, I mean, it, it also sounds like the work that you're doing to, to document this history is, is making that more visible and, and kind of creating the entry points for, for people who aren't here to experience it. But I, I also wanted to talk a bit about, because you've mentioned census records, and then like you could imagine shipping routes to and trade routes, and then mm-hmm. the Providence Journal article, uh, and, and how you have all these sort of records, mm-hmm. but, but some of them... Mm-hmm. Some of them have important information. Some of them you can't really, aren't as reliable or, or are biased or racist in, in some ways too. And mm-hmm. I, I know that um, one of the, the items at the physical exhibit that you had in relation to the, the walking tour, which we'll talk about in a little bit, was um, a copy of the white pages, uh, like a phone uh, like oh the businesses. Bus- the business directory yeah the business yeah. and and can you talk a little bit about maybe like what's in that business directory and kind of what some of that stuff tells us about like relying on you know reliable archives and and what's in those mm-hmm. archives when you actually take a close look at them yeah so we chose that business directory specifically because it lists the Chinese 
the in terms so it has a page listing different laundries and it has everyone else's name listed by last name and then it has the Chinese laundries listed separately and it just says these names are unreliable because the Chinese community always changes their names or something around that and it's from 1917 yeah. or so right so 1905 or 1905 oh, 1905 okay yeah, so yeah. earlier yeah. yeah and so and so there is a backstory to that as well that in order for in order for Chinese to come into this country during the exclusion act years a lot of times they would buy papers they're called paper sun and they would able to be able to purchase a passport or immigration record that would say that they were born in the United States because otherwise there was no way to immigrate. So like, for example, we talked to, to one guy who his father was already here and he was a child in China. And so he, his father was able to purchase this paper that said that his son was somebody else so that he was able to immigrate. And he had to pass this study for two years from when he was 10 years old to when he was 12 years old and pass this big immigration test. Interrogation. Interrogation, yeah. Yeah, this is the interrogation in San Francisco. We have the Andrew Island Immigration Office. So everybody has to pass there So for the Chinese immigrants. So this this guy that we have, I mean, this, this yeah. So she, he was spent two years in Hong Kong. There's an agency, so they can, there's a system actually. An agency, you know, running this kind of business, they purchase somebody else's legal document in the U.S. but died. You really a kid, and then sell it to somebody else in China who can came to the U.S. come to the U.S. legally under somebody's name. So the 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 surname surname is always not it's not their real surname. So that's why we see this paper sign system. And mm-hmm. we have this kind of uh, public opinion that Chinese names were uh, not uh, reliable, and they mm-hmm. put it on the business directory. Yeah, That's very, how to say, offensive. I think when I yeah. saw that. So, and and what is interesting that the next business directory, I mean, five years later, they changed the tune, and they didn't say okay unreliable. They just listed as others. So you can see the the change of public opinion, you know, towards this, yeah, this this issue. And what has it been like to, you know, so you have these records and 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 these sort of histories of racism and, and changing opinion, and then that, it seems like, is part of the reason you're moving into doing oral histories or having conversations or reaching out to the to the community. Can you talk a little bit about what that process is like and, and kind of, you know, your, your perspectives, you know, are your Brown University grad students, you're learning about this project, so, so what is it like to, to sort of build trust with those communities and what sorts of stories are they telling you? What kind of things are they interested in learning more about? Stuff like that. Yeah. yeah so really, even before this this project got started, we wanted to see who was interested in the community. So from that initial Brown Blogs website back in the spring, then in the fall, we came back and started working more on cultivating these community connections. So and this started really with connections that Angela had, and then also with our professors, Bob Lee and John and Wong. And we scheduled a community event at the end of November. 
we did it at a Chinese restaurant that one of the Chinese community members, Charlie Chen, he's, he runs this restaurant. He said, oh yeah, please come here. I'll, well, I have some things to share with you and we'll, and we'll put the word out. And, and Angela and I did as well. We've made flyers. We put them up in the Chinese Christian church and at the Chinese mini market in Cranston. We made a stop right. there for some supplies as well. Yeah. And so we just publicized the event. We let everyone know that it was happening. We weren't really sure if anyone would come. And then we had almost 50 people right. at the yeah. event itself. And we could really see there that people were interested in mm. talking about this history and also in seeing each other. And I think that has been one of the most right. fulfilling parts for us that we see that at each of our events. So that first uh, that first community event and then also at our exhibit opening mm-hmm. and then hopefully at our event coming up this Saturday as well, that, that people like to get together and, and talk and see old photos we were talking yesterday with one of our key community members and she was saying, oh yeah, I remember this one of the other, one of our other members from when we were kids, but I hadn't seen him and I didn't really know that he had joined the military or what his story was. And so this was a chance for them to reconnect and see each other and then be part of this project. So, and, it, and actually she had even said that this project has helped them to start recording their own histories again. And that's really what, what our goal is that to for the wider public to to know about the Chinese community and the history of Chinatown but then also for the Chinese community members to start telling these histories themselves and recording their own histories and saving artifacts and um, yeah doing oral histories together exactly so our exhibit and also our future digital archive is trying to be useful for the community as well and also for future researchers who are interested and we even share all of our findings you know images documents our histories with the rest of the community and some of them are really interested and want to have a deep dive they ask mm-hmm. us where to do the research where to do the archive where should they go to the ar- which archives should they go do they go to the state archive here or go to Boston or somewhere else so they're trying to discover their family histories as Julian has mentioned I think that's I, th- I think that's important because they have awareness to preserve their own family history which is uh, good for the collective memory you know, of the entire group as well yeah, I think that's one of our contributions, you know, to the community. Yeah, yeah we hope. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So y'all are, you're really community-centric, and what I think is so cool about um, your exhibit is that it's in downtown Providence. So just to describe your exhibit for our podcast listeners, <laughs> um, you have window perforations on and several storefronts on mm-hmm. Westminster Street in downtown Providence. What's Westminster and Empire, and which Empire is where Street. the old the first Chinatown would have been. So what was it like working with people and businesses downtown <laughs> getting that done? And also um, when did you decide like we're going to reconstruct this history in the place where it happened? Yeah, I think so. I think we had the idea to use urban space and use downtown Providence from the very beginning, from last spring, but we didn't really know exactly how we'd be able to do it or what that process would be like. Mm-hmm. Turns out the process was mostly just telling everyone that we know that we were doing it and, and that and asking who had connections and how we might go about using storefront windows. I think there was some art there were some art projects years back where they used storefronts and so we had that as we knew that it happened and we also knew from our professor Diana Donahue that she had done something similar in a store a university bookstore and so really it was especially after we found out we had grant funding so we had more money in the budget that 
I started reaching out to just different property owners and then also to community organizations in Providence who have just been really, really supportive. So, for example, the Providence Public Library has one of our window perforations and then also Trinity Repertory across the street. So they there's two window perforations there. And then on Westminster Street, it was more property owners. And so just finding contacts. So, for example, the Rhode Island State Archives has the artifacts in our exhibit and they're on display there. So we have some things in their window front, but then their property owner who owns their building owns a building down the street. And that one, they allowed us to put up some window perforations there as well. And what was, what's been the, cause it's been up now for, for how long? A month and a half. A month and a half. So what, yeah. what kind of feedback? And you also had a sort of launch party event at the, mm. the Rhode Island State Archives where you also had the physical materials um, that had been donated or, or collected on display too. Um, yeah, like you've talked a little bit about sort of how community members who may have lost touch or, mm. or kind of um, interacting with each other or reuniting in, at these events. But yeah, have, have you been surprised by some of the um, reactions stuff like that yeah i think i think everyone who hears about it who isn't in the chinese community everyone says oh there was a pro there was a chinatown in providence and nobody really knows about it so they're really interested and so one way that we've reached out with people is just taking our brochures and putting them in yeah. everywhere we can think of including okay. coffee shops so for example restaurants yeah. yeah so if i'm doing work in the coffee exchange i'm like okay i'll put a pile of brochures and then a uh a journalist for the Providence Journal happened to be there the next day, picked it up and gave us a call and said, oh, I want to do a story on your project. I never knew that I've lived in Providence for most yeah. of my life and I didn't know that there was a Chinatown. Tell me about it. So we've had a lot of stories like that of people just saying, oh, we didn't know about it. We're interested. We want to come and see the exhibit. Yeah. And I think also one of the reasons that the urban space is so important is just walking downtown. I'll go down to put more brochures in the brochure racks. And I'll just see people have stopped and maybe they just pause for a second, but they're like, oh, what, what is this thing in the window? And they'll stop and look and learn a little bit about it. And so that's been, I mean, it's hard to know exactly how many people we've reached that way, but there's at least it's out there. And that's something for, for people to interact with as they walk downtown. Right. I think the Providence Journal is really influential. So many people ask us in doing our working tour with the Latino Heritage Conference. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we did uh, oh, two we, weeks we, ago. We saw that, you know, from the Purgio. I mean, oh, we didn't know. Everyone didn't know there was a historical Chinatown here. So they want to know more. So that's why they joined our working tour, specifically mm -hmm. designed for them, right? Um, the end of April, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And um, so, and you've talked a bit about the influence of Diane Donahue's work and, and the collaborators she's had in Boston, looking at Boston's uh, Chinatown neighborhood and then specifically the library um, there. And, and we'll hear a bit more about that in a bit. Um, are there other projects or um, whether they're books or, or, you know, public events that have influenced this approach or, or are you really kind of finding that like there's more, there is a real need to, to have more of this work happening. I mean, like the, it's great that you're having people coming up to you and saying, Oh, I didn't know there was a Chinatown in Providence. I've lived mm -hmm. here for years, but that, that is also telling in another way, right? Like that there's a clear need to, to sort of fill that space with the, the kind of work that you and, and other people are doing. But are, are there any people that you're sort of also pulling from or? I think I remember in doing our working tour with the Latino group 
Some of them said, "Oh, this is a very nice idea to use urban space, window fronts. We can they can do something similar, you know, to、mm-hmm. just occupy the urban space and try to share their immigration, you know, story and also the community story, not only immigrants but other, you know, stories as well." I think that's something a, a big takeaway for us.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think we've been influenced. Yeah, by lots of different、yeah. projects we've seen just from classes and working with professors,、okay. and then. Really building on that, we see what work other people in our community are doing, and then we see if there's connections, and we can、mm-hmm. pull people in for collaborations. And so、okay. that's what we did with the No No Boy project.、Yeah. The、um, they they write songs about the Asian American experience and Japanese incarceration, especially. And so we spoke with Julian and Aaron and said, "We have this Providence Chinatown exhibit. We know you have your." Your folk songs and music that you do related to this, and so we asked if they would do a concert with us, and so we formed a partnership. And Julian even offered, like, oh, well, if you have archives and data, we can use some of that and write a new song about Providence's Chinatown.、Mm-hmm. And so he did, and we premiered that. That was also April twenty eighth.、Yes. So things like that, where we're we're building off of different types of of styles and different ways to reach audiences,、mm-hmm. and so we're trying to. Use our project as a way to connect lots of different things、mm-hmm. and w- within our community. Yeah, within the Asian American community and also beyond、mm-hmm. the you、yeah. know the community. So, and the and the concert thing, I think, is our initial thought is try to attract the young people because you know the historical part maybe is more attract attractive active to, to the to the older and earlier generation. But the concert thing, I think, maybe is more appealing to students. You、mm-hmm. know, so yeah, so that turns out quite quite good.、Right? So what's next for you all? Oh, <laughs> so so most immediately, what's next is on Saturday, May twelfth. We have a walking tour event at the Rhode Island that starts at the Rhode Island State Archives. We'll do a walking tour of downtown and show Providence's historic Chinatown.、And、then afterwards, we have a lunch and a conversation with us as the curators and one of our community members, Irene. And then in that same afternoon, we have a film screening of the the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is a film that will debut on PBS coming up shortly. And our our partners, the Chinese Historical Society of New England, have been very involved with with creating that film and publicizing it. And so, it's through working with them that we have that film screening, and then also a panel discussion afterwards that we'll talk about. Chinese immigration, paper sons, and also linking these trends to modern day immigration. Yeah, especially the contemporary crisis on immigration policies.、Mm-hmm. And and that yeah the 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 resonance with twenty eighteen I think is is you know really fascinating and compelling portion of this. I mean, what's it's are what are some ways in which you've Been reminded of what's happening in in 2018 from sort of doing this sort of further back work and and how has the project tried to, you know maybe, think about opportunities for advocacy or for、um, you know even like activism or or things、mm-hmm. like that along、uh, you know some of the lines and conversations about immigration that we're seeing in you know the current administration and and even on a more local level too.、Uh, I think our panel、um, previously we only. Prepare a panel on immigration, and then we decide to, you know, to add the exclusion part to it because I think it's so obvious in the contemporary America and also in historical America. I think that's something we can't avoid in just to tell the the rosy picture, but something 
real, right? That happened, uh, yeah, hundreds of years ago, one hundred years ago, and then、uh, we, you know, this mount is actually the Asian Pacific American Heritage Mount, May. So I think this our project to you know to have the window front and a walking tour in April and May is actually try to you know it's like a resonant with this kind of、uh, cultural heritage you know thing. And one more thing is about social activism. We have one panel devoted to Grizzly Box, who is a very important、uh, Asian American activist, and also doing、uh, African American activism with James Box, her husband, a pioneer figure in this field. And she was a local, you know, Rhode Islander. You know, she was、uh, born here in Providence and moved to New York、uh, around six something. So I think this is a, a heritage, a legacy of Providence. Chinese community wanted, you know, to to credit her work and try to connect uh, uh, more people from other, you know, community like the African American, you know, community and also people who are interested in social justice and activism to be、uh, involved in this project.、Mm -hmm. And there's also some connections with any urban renewal projects yeah, because、exactly. that first Chinatown was on Burl Street, and then when they widened. Empire Street. They basically just took out every everywhere where the Chinese community members were living. So any boarding houses and businesses and homes there, and so right there immediately we could see a connection to modern day urban renewal, and then also just how that that trend continued all throughout history. So that would have been around nineteen fourteen. Yeah. What's uh in terms of maybe concluding remarks and Amelia, you can jump in、uh, too if you have any. Uh, additional questions towards the end here.、Um, what would be one? And I know you've talked about how there's a lot of lessons you've learned from this, but one piece of advice you might give to other people who are starting to take an interest in community history and and doing more work to to make community history visible and engaging to the people who have lived in these regions previously and and the people who are here today. One piece of suggestion I would. Give is、uh, try to、uh, engage community members as collaborators who have a shared authority in the in the research process, a project process. View them as partners, not as you know something we're studying. Is so this is something we are very careful. You know, have this shared authority. Yeah, and yeah, and I think it's also important to be able to build partnerships with organizations in the area as well because. For example, for this project, Angela and I are students, and we have a set amount of time where we'll be here. I'm graduating in a few weeks, and I know I won't be in Providence, but this is really important work. So, to build those partnerships with organizations and with community members, that means that those partnerships can continue once we're not here. So, for us, that was especially important to bring in the Chinese Historical Society of New England. <clears throat> They're based in Boston, and they really wanted to expand their work into other areas of New England, and so by Bringing connections to Providence, so now they have this basis of people that they know in Rhode Island, and so going forward, that's an idea that they have the idea that oh maybe we would write a grant or do some projects based in Providence and Rhode Island as well as in Boston. Great, and and we really look forward to seeing more of that work happening in Providence, and then also I think that there's a lot of great work here that'll inspire sort of similar projects nationally, internationally. Maybe our space too. <laughs> I mean, you have a website, so it's probably be able to get there somewhere. Yeah,、um, yeah. 
And uh, thanks so much for talking. And then we're also uh, going to have an opportunity to hear from Diane O'Donoghue about um, sort of the work that she's done and how that work has informed uh, the stuff that you're doing in Providence. Hi, Diane. Welcome to join us at the podcast with Emily and Jim. Oh, I'm delighted to be part of it. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thank you for coming to our event, the opening reception. So we have a few questions for you, but before that, I think we would like to hear your uh, feedback or impression on our you know, yeah. exhibit and the window front, you know, this exhi urban exhibit as well. Yeah, because you've really been a big inspiration for us that we saw your project and then found out there was a Chinatown in Providence. And so we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on our exhibit and how our projects connect to each other. Well, first I have to say that it's always an amazing thing when you put something together and then someone takes it and goes another step further with it. So what was so remarkable to me was that the very thing that we felt we couldn't achieve which was the combination of an external event with small archival objects in an inner display area because we just didn't have the physical space to accommodate that. You actually took the realization and made it all happen, which was really quite extraordinary um, because we were forced to basically only put our things on the outside of the windows, and that was wonderful. And in terms of the efficacy of our goals um, to really make a statement about a very specific and quite political uh, need in that community, it was wonderful. But the thing we had also hoped was to show the physical objects, and we were really unable to have the kind of space that you were afforded at the State Archives building to to have or in those rooms. And so for us, it was very rewarding to see it taken actually to a place where you could include an inner and outer space, um, a replication mm -hmm. of archives, but the actual objects themselves too. So, um, so it was really a, quite a wonderful experience to see that. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful that we were able to make the connections with the, the Rhode Island State Archives and then use the outdoor space. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I thought was really a, a great inspiration from your project was using the, the urban space and the just the importance of using the streetscape and then using the more traditional museum space as well, that we were right. able to right. to combine those. Yes, yes and you were able to achieve it. Um, and I think for for us to see also how you use the streetscape and just creating more awareness of the potential of taking um, these often small, delicate, ephemeral at times objects that are archival, that are usually now thought of as wonderful because they can be um, created digitally um, and therefore viewed by individuals, but to actually create them and put them into very um, urban spaces of discourse and discovery and spontaneity are is very different from the experience of seeing or viewing archival documents um, uh, that are digitized and available on one's laptop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, and that's actually something that we're thinking about now with our project that the perforations and all and the yeah. windows and then the exhibit is all coming down on May 31st. And right. so we're starting to think about the afterlife of our project and also the afterlife of your project and 
and what what you were able to do after those those perforations came down in China in Boston's Chinatown. Right. So, um, as you may remember, when we took them down, there was considerable um, neighborhood sadness and even yeah, a small yeah, um, riot. the the tough bookstore not really but people were came in and and some of them were neighborhood people and some of them were people associated with the Tufts medical school who had really just become very attached to those and so people were shocked when they came down which is remarkable because it it gave it it showed the sense of permanency that those have although they're really rather fragile uh, fugitive um, colors and they they don't last. They're never meant to last. Um, so when we took it down, we recognized that people really responded to them. And so going forward, there we will absolutely um, get funded projects which will allow these window displays to become, we hope, ultimately an ongoing and therefore permanent part of the landscape of that neighborhood. Right, exactly. The communities here express similar concerns. Oh, really? They're going down, you know, coming down at the end of May. They say, how can we keep them? Can we? Can you give it to I us? Know. I say, oh, you know, this, this kind of material cannot be reused, but we, we decide to share our designs with the community and the association mm-hmm. so they can reprint and reinstall yes, whatever, exactly. you know, whenever they want to use it again. So I think that's something we can give back to the community. Which is wonderful, which is wonderful. And we had originally aspired when we first were um, seeking funding for the These Words exhibition would be to hang them in a kind of almost like hanging scrolls. In other words, they would hang Mm -hmm. down, Mm -hmm. but the expense was prohibitive. So in order to do, basically we did nearly 40 of them, um, it was that we had to go to a commercial vendor, we had to go to a commercial material in order to achieve our goal. The one downside of that was that, of course, once you peel it off, it's completely gone. But yeah. the digital capacity to reproduce it again, of course, is always there. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Diane, for people who don't know the, the These Words project and the work that you've done in Boston's Chinatown, can you just very briefly like set up what the, that project was and what your motivations were there? Sure, of course. Um, it had come to um, our attention at Tisch College, where I'm the director of the Program for Public Humanities, that there was um, a very strong and powerful and inspiring student um, movement that had gone on for two decades, uh, some of them involving students that then became tough students, um, in the uh, advocacy to return to the neighborhood a public library branch. One does not imagine public library branches as being so controversial, nor do most people, I think, realize that uh, a city can decide at any time to close a branch, which is what happened twice in the case of the um, Chinatown branch, once in 1938 and again in 1956. So we are talking about six decades of the closure and inaccessibility of the neighborhood to a library branch, and the students had taken up the vanguard um, doing surveys and petitioning the mayor and all sorts of things. And when it kind of um, came to our doorstep, I began to think, isn't there another way we might create a visibility and advocacy in tandem with their work, and in fact, even showing their work, but in the form of an urban exhibition, very different than anything that had been done before 
in terms of activism around this topic. So we decided to do something that was a real arts humanities intervention um, rather than something that is more typically coming out of social sciences or uh, citizen activism and things like this, other precedents. And we uh, indeed decided to create this large-scale urban exhibition with small archival materials on the streets, the very streets of the neighborhood that was so desiring and needing um, and worthy of this library. So we documented archivally the vibrancy, not only of the previous library branches, which were in archival photography in the archives of our partner, the Chinese Historical Society of New England, but also um, to really make a case for how this neighborhood had a kind of distinctive and remarkable interchange with the life of words, that they had a really vibrant printing press and uh, community bulletin boards for decades. And we had a lot of archival evidence for all of that. So we could really make a case and the time was right. We had a new librarian, a new mayor, um, uh, they could see the exhibition and it just, I think, helped push to what now is the reality of a branch. Diane, just now, uh, before you join us, Julian and I talk about our takeaways of the province Chinatown project. We, we think the ur occupying urban spaces and also building connections with the organizations and also view the community members uh, as collaborators and partners and have a shared authority are most of our right. takeaways. We wonder what is all your takeaways from these words and also considering uh, taking into considering of our own Providence Chinatown project as a whole. I mean, the two of mm -hmm. projects together. So are, the, are there any lessons or suggestions that we can take into our future projects? Well, we have two very different projects in the issue of constituencies. Mm -hmm. Your Chinatowns no longer exist. So much of the um, the public that you were engaging with, much of the communities that you needed to connect to for your resources as well as for the support of the project are individual peoples who are no longer in the community itself. So in your way, you were reaching out to individuals, to families, to um, societies. We, um, of course, Boston still has a, a large uh, community, one that needed something there in that neighborhood very significantly. So our outreach was in fact less to families, individuals, and small maybe social societies than it was to all of the intricate and really quite amazing organizations, social, civic, political, economic organizations within Chinatown to partner with them not only to gather resources, but also to really gather their support, because these had all been organizations that had over the years attempted to move forward the library issue. And so if we were going to try something very different, we needed to make sure that there was community buy-in, because uh, unlike your project, there really was precedent for activism and engagement on the issue. It just had never been able to quite be successful in part because of the uh, regime at the public library as well as of the former mayor. So um, I think in that way we had a distinctive um, connections in our two mm -hmm. projects. Um, but 
what was so interesting, I think, in our case was that in the end, it was the individual residents of, of Chinatown who held the exhibition so dearly um, and so personally um, in ways that we never could have imagined. Closer, I think, to what I felt when I saw your exhibition and saw the individual people, because, of course, we put up images of the man who ran the printing press and his family is still there. And the people many of the the photographs included people whose um, grandparents or parents were in the photographs. But our our initial thought was not really doing it for them as much as for this broader advocacy for the library return. Mm -hmm. So it was a nice extension in a very personal way um, of that work. Yeah, I think that's right, that we had slightly different publics that we were tapping into, but we were able to use a similar methodology of using the urban space. Yes. And so we are really excited, too, in our own work and then in other work in Providence. A lot of people have said, oh, wow, look at using the window fronts to display material. Maybe that's something that that we'll use again. And then we're also excited to see other people maybe pick up the model as well to right. use this in future collaborations. Absolutely. Um, and this is the same for us. I mean, what I would like to do is this summer I'm doing a, a version of TEM, of the Tisch exhibition model, um, a little bit of a different variation um, on it to do an outside um, large-scale window exhibition mm. in um, the Berkshires of a hundred-year history of perhaps one of the most well-known and um, important psychiatric hospitals in America. And this will actually allow for the history of this hospital to be given a kind of public visibility that it's never had before. So this doesn't have the bilingual aspect, um, but it does have the bringing out into the open, as it were, and giving visibility to very rare archives, not revealing histories of patients or anything like that, but really the history of this institution um, in allowing people to see what otherwise they could never have seen, either in the archives because they were restricted or because they were just inaccessible. So um, we have a kind of new variation of the TEM as perhaps... Um, thinking about archival installations to make them into public public knowledge that's very easily accessible and very large scale. Mm -hmm. That said, the bilingual, the urban, and the also kind of um, the activist engagement piece are very important to us. So what we're really hoping is that we can take this model to other Boston neighborhoods, mm -hmm. to towns like Somerville and Medford, where we have deep partnerships through Tisch College and Tufts, and really deal with our own our partners and ask, what are there in your archival materials, your town histories, your neighborhood histories and archives, that we could possibly think about doing an exhibition of this sort that might also address um, either an, an urgent contemporary issue, gentrification, other things like this, or celebrate, as we also did in these words, the history of the distinctions of cultural institutions in a neighborhood. People did not associate Chinatown as being a center for printing, for publishing, for reading and writing. People thought of Chinatown, thought of restaurants. 
this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. this allowed uh, the neighborhood themselves also to see the their own history of a century of something very rich, and we'd love to do that in other neighborhoods as well. Diane, um, as a as someone who's been in academia for for a while, how does how did you get into doing this sort of work, and how does it sort of fit into the the other kinds of things that you're you're doing at, at Tufts, and how does it sort of like point towards different uses of archival materials or different ways um, for people in university or college spaces to to interact more and and collaborate more with local communities? Well, I think. Um... You know, I'm an art historian. Um, I was trained as an archaeologist, and so there is something about archives that um, have always been very resonant in my research. Um, my original field of study was uh, Chinese archaeology, so um, full disclosure, I, you know, part of the These Words experience, I think, that was very helpful in my case was that I was able to deal with the, at least especially the written Chinese materials. So it was natural that I would gravitate to, I think, um, a bilingual situation that was familiar to me. But that said, I think more broadly, I see more and more amongst my art historical colleagues, my uh, colleagues in archaeology, and certainly in cultural and visual history, that there is this great interest now in uh, trying to reclaim a kind of uh, personal narratives, uh, work in archives in, that have a nuance that's quite different than the past. I think also digital humanities and their impact on the archives have changed how we use them and think about them. Also just you know, developments in scholarship, critical thinking have also shaped how we imagine a kind of primary quote-unquote document in ways that are very different now than they were in the past. So I think that this is actually a very exciting time for people that do even rather traditional fields of scholarship in, um, in art history and archaeology uh, to imagine a blurring of those boundaries and working in areas that they, they otherwise might not have considered in the past at all. And it sounds like you're really pushing those boundaries with the Tisch exhibition model. And it sounds like this model is really rooted in communities and also perhaps social justice. But I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the Tisch exhibition model. Well, I can tell you um, that it was born of these words and it has grown <laughs> from there. That is, it, it certainly, um, I mean, we, we use the phrase because... Um, we felt that we wanted to um, to be able to preserve something about the actual, the very things that you have spoken about, the um, the format itself, the rather distinctive format, the the use and the commitment to making more visible aspects of archival history, the um, the civic political activist engagement potential of that. Um, and at least in the case of both of our exhibitions, the, the bilingual um, piece of it in an attempt to really be able to make as accessible as possible this material. So we gave it this name because we wanted to actually ensure that the guiding principles that we felt made this quite successful were not um, did not become so particularized to just that exhibition. We wanted to sort of take what worked there um, and 
what we might be able to bring from what we learned out into other communities and other areas. So as I say, this exhibition I'm doing this summer in Stockbridge for what's called the Austin Rig Center, that's uh, is clearly is something that's a bit different, but in another way, it still captures that sense of taking something that has a history, it's often invisible, history of mental health institutions in America as very fraught and very complex, and actually bringing forth a lot of questions and um, images and experiences for people to actually uh, have access to. So it feels like in that way there may be variations on the TEM that we didn't even anticipate initially. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really amazing. We didn't know about the the project in the Berkshires this summer, and we're excited to hear that the Tisch exhibition model is moving forward and really including, like you were saying, new and different types of projects, but with the same founding principles. Right, right. And that's why we kind of wanted to give it a name um, and wanted to give it something that we could then use to... Um, to sort of go out and into the communities and go out into these various places. And I will say that while I had been a fellow um, four years ago um, at the Austin Riggs Institute, because I write a lot, as you know, on theories of the history of memory um, and narratives that cross into the history of psyche and um, brain and psychoanalysis, um, that they also knew about these words. And so it mm-hmm. was actually these words which inspired them to ask me to come back and do this for them. Um, not the fact that I had been a, a fellow there uh, sort of writing on, I wasn't writing on the history of this hospital in any way, but um, so that was actually quite nice too. Hi, Diane, one last question. So so you're working with Chisney for this, these words and your future, you know, uh, future It's the, uh, the Chinese Historical Society of New England. Yes, yeah. so yes, we're right. also working with them, I'm thinking from there. So is there any future possible collaborations between Providence and Boston? Oh, well, I mean, of course, I should have Susan um, Chinson, the director of Chisney, here to answer that, too. But <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, I can't imagine not, because, and again, speaking for her and for that wonderful organization, um, the desire there is to have it really be what its title suggests. It is the Chinese Historical Society of New England. And so while it has focused a lot of its um, attention, uh, because primarily the resources of its archives have been Boston, in that Boston community, um, this has been such a wonderful um, example of the possibilities of collaborating with another historic community, Chinese community in New England. And therefore the mandate of, of Chisney is extended because of it, and I cannot imagine that there would not be a desire to continue with this. That's great. We are looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, you know, it's great, and we, we love that you inspired students here at, at Brown to sort of pick up the mantle and, and continue this work, too. Well, it's wonderful. It's, it makes us both at, at Tufts and Tisch um, delighted and of course um, at Chisney as well so it feels like it's a kind of a model going forward of collaborative activities uh, between uh, community partners between universities um, and communities that seem um, to be wonderful and hopefully will continue yeah we mm-hmm. look forward to seeing what comes next Great. okay